I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash achieve today. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with Plush Care. Plush Care accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. plushcare.com slash weight loss. Since 2013, Bombas has donated over 100 million socks, underwear, and T-shirts to those facing homelessness. If we counted those on air, this ad would last over 1,157 days. But if we counted the time it takes to make a donation possible, it would take just a few clicks. Because every time you make a purchase, Bombas donates an item to someone who needs it. Go to bombas.com slash ACAST and use code ACAST for 20% off your first purchase. That's bombas.com slash ACAST, code ACAST. Hi. Hello. Welcome back to Old Millennials, a deep dive on shallow topics from the late 90s and 2000s. I am one of your hosts, Emily Beijing. And I am your other host, Margot Poupard. Now, before we get into today's episode, I'd like to do a quick pop culture check, Margot, because a lot has happened in the last few days that has just collided with our Old Millennials universe. Okay, Shook hit is- me. Shook us in A-Rod, apparently oh, seen God. together. No, it's so oh my it's he is so calculating. I cannot stand him. R- may I cast your mind back to A-Rod after he got dumped by JLo publicly, walking around his room, all of these frame photos are singing Coldplay. This man is a fucking con artist and honestly just a straight up fucking weirdo. Okay. Yes, yeah, I'm in Shookus. Ugh. Maybe question mark. Who knows? Oh, uh, please. Number two, Avril Levine decided to make her debut on TikTok by doing a video of Skater Boy in which Tony Hawk appears skating on a ramp as if we did not manifest this into the universe. I'm just saying. Yeah. First of all, everybody, you're welcome. Second of all, I will repeat what I texted you. Not bad for a clone. <laughs> A la one of the conspiracy theories. Too bad it wasn't that weird dolphin song. She would have really like fucked up TikTok if she oh, actually it would that be broken. Song you the, found. The, the, it would be broken. It would be over forever. Bye bye TikTok. R.I.P. Yeah, it was nice yeah. knowing you. Number three. NSYNC and Backstreet Boys are at least two members from each group doing a bye-bye-bye routine in what I believe they were calling Backsync in a kind of joint group, which like had sparked rumors of a potential collaboration in the long run. Uh, I don't 100%. know if you saw this video. Yeah. Oh, yes. Of course I did. Uh, 100% would go to that Vegas residency. Yes. And again, uh, I can't believe I'm about to say this because I have not watched Dancing with the Stars in forever, but when I did, I have to say, AJ was robbed. He's so good in that video. 
let he me does tell it better you. than Lance, an actual yes. founding member. Yes. The Leave Nick Carter behind, though. That man was not with it. <laughs> no, looked, no. But I he was a little say, bit behind. But who delivers on every single Backstreet Boys documentary or Lou Pearlman documentary? The person who comes in with the best stories, with the info, who's in there and is like, "Yeah, I'm willing <laughs> to talk and tell you about my past struggles." And it's just all around a good guy. Like he's proven on social media that he's liberal and he cares about people and shit. AJ McLean, great human. AKA Johnny No Name. Johnny No Name. No, I like AJ. I I, I agree with what the internet said, which was have sync reunite with AJ singing all of Justin's parts. And I agree. He fits I right in. Love it. I don't AJ I really and don't JC. See the oh my yeah. God. Give it up. It would be so good. It would be so good. Ugh, two, thank you. Two letter icon names together in one band the way God intended, right? Do you Truly. have any other breaking news that you wanted to discuss? I think or that's- hot topics if we want to be <laughs> on brand for today's subject. Yes. I mean, I think the one final thing is uh, the Josie and the P- Pussycats merchandise that you shared with me yesterday, which I was very excited to browse. <laughs> oh, yeah. Um, if you haven't checked out superyaki.com, highly recommend. I bought a bunch of the This is a Nora Ephron film tote bags for like a wrap gift, and they were a huge hit. And I also love mine, but they also have a, a bunch of really funny and great pop culture merch. Yes. <laughs> so, yes. Super I didn't yaki. Know. I yeah. didn't know about them until yesterday, but I did buy the Josie and the Pussycats is the greatest film of all time join the army hat so i'll be wearing that at one point to a night to a future outing where we see each other yay well i'm glad we could get into today's hot topics because here at the old millennials we love some good old-fashioned behind the scenes drama collectively the two of us could write a very detailed book on the fast and the furious franchise (laughs) and what has conspired on the set and on instagram between cast members over the years Much like hashtag fast family, the two shows we're talking about today have seen their fair share of drama, both behind the scenes and on live TV. Those shows are the Rosie O'Donnell show and the view. Hashtag romantage. Hashtag romantage. Now, before we get into it today, Margot, do you have any preferences over the Rosie O'Donnell show versus the view? Have you seen any full episodes of either show? I loved the Rosie O'Donnell show to watch Mm -hmm. after school. That was Mm -hmm. a good after school program because I mean, we will talk about it, but for all of the reasons that it was beloved at the time, it was fun. It looked like a giant FAO Schwartz set. She had great guests on. She was always sort of like on the cusp of like, she, you know, discovered or not discovered, but she like featured younger artists. So even before they would break on TRL and on MTV, they'd be on Rosie. And so, and she was, I mean, I love a league of their own and she was always very funny and sort of around throughout the nineties. So you felt very familiar with her and they really, the show really kind of encapsulated her sort of like cool big sister vibe. So I watched a lot of that. And then when the view started, I did watch maybe a couple of episodes from each season up until like maybe 2000 and well, I watched the 2007 fight, but uh, yeah. Maybe up until like 2005, like high school time, I mm-hmm. watched like a couple episodes here and there because I like Barbara Walters, another person 
sort of like um, Linda Ellerby, who I'd watched for forever do yes. big interviews and break mm-hmm. news stories. I sort of was like curious about what the daytime show would be like. And so, since it usually would start in the summer, I'd be able to catch it um, because I think it's like, I forget what time, like maybe 11 a.m., 1030, somewhere in there. So yeah. it wasn't very frequent that I would watch it live. But I think like most things now, I mean, up until like a couple of years ago, I would like catch clips of it too, just here and there, just to kind of like if there was something funny, especially when Whoopi joined, I was very curious. But I, as we talked about before we hit record, I fucking hate Megan McCain. And so I really kind of stay away, like purposefully stay away from the show now. But um, what about you? Yeah, I mean, very similarly to you, I caught a lot of Rosie's show in the 90s, which I enjoyed, especially on like sick days and that kind of thing. Um, She's always fun, always had great guests and was just like, we'll talk about this later, but just so different in her format and style and Mm -hmm. influenced so many other shows to come. Mm -hmm. Um, As for The View, I have only seen a handful of episodes, mainly during the summers in between college when I was working at a store part time and like was up at that hour, you know, getting ready for work. And Mm -hmm. I actually caught the day that the Elizabeth Hasselbeck, Rosie O'Donnell argument went down Mm. and subsequently saw Rosie O'Donnell a week or two later after she left The View at Cindy Lauper's True Colors tour, oh. where she did an appearance and did like just talked about what had gone down and was like, you know, she sucks and all this stuff. And <laughs> it was just, it was very funny. Apparently, she talked about also how she and Madonna on the set of Illegal Their Own uh, bonded over their vibrators, which I thought was kind of funny. <laughs> Uh, but yeah, that's that's the extent of my view watching a, a bit here and there between like 2006 to 2008 ish. But even though I wasn't like a regular view viewer, yes. I did really enjoy the book that came out last year by Ramin Satuta, uh, Ladies Who Punch. That was just fascinating in a lot of ways because I don't know a ton about daytime TV and how sort of like the logistics and the budgeting even kind of work. And although we will be taking a lot of info from that book and repurposing it for this episode if you really want like a fun Mm -hmm. I mean it reads sort of like if you've ever watched the movie Soap Dish like it reads like that movie it's just like so juicy and there are twists and turns but he also gives a lot of really good backstory about Barbara Walters career some stuff I really didn't know about her that is very interesting and he gets a lot of great interviews with a lot of former producers both for Rosie's show and The View so if you've ever had even a passing interest in how a show like The Viewer, a daytime talk show gets made. And if you like a blueprint of how things are done kind of now, I highly recommend Ladies Who Punch. It really kind of goes by super quickly. It's a great summer read. If you're just like on vacation or whatever, you can just blow through that thing in an afternoon, maybe two days tops. I am very excited to read it after uh, doing all this research. There's just, it's, it's so Interesting how the Rosie O'Donnell show and how the view worked behind the scenes. One, as you mentioned, just like knowing the ins and outs of how daytime TV works um, mm-hmm. and how that all happens. But also just seeing that, um, you know, the women that they cast on the view for the most part, not everyone. There are, you know, they like to put in a few every once in a while who are not qualified, but for the <laughs> most part are just like these amazingly accomplished women from their, you mm-hmm. know, fields of, you know, law or journalism or acting or what have you, like who come to the show 
and have worked so hard to get where they are, probably dealing with a lot of sexist assholes and politics along the way, that it's not surprising that some of the conflicts that came up would come up. Mm -hmm. Yeah, definitely. I mean, there are a lot of big personalities, right, for sort of a lack of a better phrase. And of course, they're going to butt heads. And like, that's what Barbara wanted. And it's Mm -hmm. interesting that Rosie kind of shows at first, you know, she's like the queen of nice at the beginning of her show. And then at a certain point, there is a turn with a guest that I will talk about later that really kind of shows you like a preview of how and why she was chosen for the view. And it's like they're chosen for like their journalistic integrity in certain aspects. But also, you know, it's like they always have like the young upstart, right? Mm -hmm. Like they had a revolving door of women in that sort of seat, but they sort of casted for a type as well, which is sort of what you do versus like a solo hosted daytime show where you are more about being a facilitating personality to promote other celebrities. And it's interesting that Rosie's like big icon for her show was Merv Griffith, who is like, I could not tell you one thing about that man, but I do know about the Merv Griffith show. You know what I mean? Like he was sort of like, He's a he's a he's a gentle celebrity interviewer from the 50s and 60s. You know, I could not yes. tell you. I couldn't pick him out of a lineup, though. Well, and yeah, Mirth Griffith. Um, I've oh, the only reason I really know is I just wa- started watching the history of late night, which was a CNN series. That oh, they I've heard that's did. really good. Do you Very like it? Very good. One, I love it. I'm three episodes in. Two, Dick Cavett is my favorite all time late night mm-hmm. host. I, He's just he's a he's a treat. Um, but also hearing Mark Griffith, who during that time was kind of uh, there. Were, the late night wars began in the late sixties when uh, started people started competing with the Tonight Show, and Mark Griffith was on, I believe, CBS uh, as uh, one of the late night hosts to kind of compete with Johnny Carson over at NBC on the Tonight Show. Oh, okay. But highly recommend if anybody's looking for something uh, to watch. It's on Hulu, I think, the CNN show. I've always liked those that they do. I think Tom Hanks produces all of those things. So good stuff. Um, Before we get into Rosie O'Donnell's show, um, do you have any kind of other thoughts about, you know, all the research that we did leading up to today's episode? Um. No, not really. I mean, like, the amount of money is always sort of staggering. Rosie doesn't get into specific numbers or anything like that, but obviously she made quite a bit of money and she didn't really need to go on The View. So it was more about, like, an opportunity to do something interesting. Actually, I think the most interesting thing is that if you want to compare, like, the Rosie show and The View, even though I think that their formats maybe other than having interviews are not very good of a comparison in terms of tone and even like time slot and stuff like that. Um, I find it interesting that Rosie like went through a ton of directors in her time, like Mm -hmm. hated some dude named Bob. She'd just like yell at him all the time versus Barbara, who is very much a stalwart who works with the same people is incredibly loyal. You know, Mark Gentile was like the director for forever until he was like, I can't fucking do this anymore. So I find that kind of contrast to be interesting. But other than that, I just find the whole world of daytime talk shows to be interesting and want to do like, you know, Today Show versus GMA Wars kind of next or something. Yeah. I just find like the na- the evolving nature and how and why they're even still important and still on air to be really kind of interesting because it's like, oh, traditional journalism has like gone out the window, but somehow, you know, these certain formats stand the test of time. But what about them 
makes them that timeless. Truly. And I think one final thing that I thought of when you're talking about that, you know, the daytime TV, there's a certain level of pleasantry that's involved mm-hmm. with daytime television. Uh, you are, you keep it light. The interview questions are tend to be softballs. Like it's, it, there's yeah. a tone to it. There's a perkiness to it. But what's been the most interesting for, thing for me between doing this research and just knowing a little bit about what's gone on behind the scenes of the Today Show, as we, you know, have all learned over the last couple of years, unfortunately, it becomes mm-hmm. much darker in some cases, or at least much uh, more colorful than we imagine. Um, and just yeah. from a set of sense of drama and like, things happening, conflict, and just personalities that seem to be one way on air who are completely different behind the scenes. Yeah. It's also, you brought up an interesting choice about how like everything is, you know, light softball questions. It's also literally very bright. Like there is a color palette that all daytime Mm. TV shows kind of use that kind of render everything flat, which I think Rosie's show did a really good job of not doing. And I think that's yes. why it was such an an insane phenomenon. You know, her show alone sold out Elmo dolls the year yes. that year for Christmas. Like that's how colorful and fun. And I think the set decor of her show really, like I said, is like it's a kid's dream come true kind of thing. Yeah. And that's what sort of set her apart and made her even though she was doing light softball questions and celebrities knew that they could go there and not get asked any hard questions and that she was just going to be like very reverent towards them. Um, it it was nice that to have a set that like matched that personality a little bit. Completely. I, yeah, 100%. And it's strange agree. that that was like a, a unique selling point, right? Like it was like such a difference than like Sally Jesse, where it's like two shitty office chairs, you know, like yeah. next to each other on like a community theater stage, right? So I just thought like it was visually pleasant, even though it, it wasn't like the traditional daytime pleasantries that we're necessarily used to. Yeah. And actually, that segues really nicely into Rosie's show, which. Uh, because she created it, she hosted it, and she produced it. She had a say in almost everything about that show. And she was very adamant about that from the get-go. So leading up to her starting the show, she grew up in Long Island, started doing stand-up comedy around 1979. She had just dropped out of Boston University. She did the club circuit through 1984, which is when she'll get her first big break, winning several weeks on Star Search. She actually ended up on the show because Ed McMahon's daughter caught her set at a comedy club in Long Island. And then this is when she would transition into starting an acting career and a hosting career. So she would start acting on the show Give Me a Break in the 80s, later also becoming a VJ for VH1, hosting the show Stand Up Spotlight, which is pretty much what it sounds like, spotlighting stand-up comedians. In the early 90s, this is when her movie career would start to blossom. She would get major roles in In a League of Their Own, The Flintstones, Sleepless in Seattle, Now and Then, and Beautiful Girls. By the way, when I did this research, I also found out uh, that Rosie and Demi Moore were our age when they did Now and Then. So that was a fun experience to realize, you know, how old we are. Uh (laughs) Sometimes this podcast can be so traumatizing. I mean, I'm still haunted by the ghost of Carrie Bradshaw being like, I'm 33. Like, stop, go away. Go home. Leave me alone. (laughs) Go back to your shoes or something. 
one of the other roles that she was about to get was the role of Mary Sanderson in Hocus Pocus. It was given to hmm. Kathy Najimy because she Rosie turned down the role because she claims she didn't want to portray a witch that she thought was like horrifying and kind of scary, which is funny because like Hocus Pocus is scary for like two seconds, but ultimately is just a hoot. Um, but anyway, right. Uh, Rosie would decide to go towards hosting because she had just adopted her son, Parker. And while filming Harriet the Spy, the hectic shooting schedule in Toronto resulted in her spending very little time with her newly adopted son. So prior to her talk show premiering, she had guest hosted on Live with Regis and Kathy Lee. And amid rumors of Kathy Lee wanting to leave, she was really she had expressed that she was happy to take on that role. But ultimately, it became clear that Kathy Lee was going to stay. And at that point, Rosie started pitching the idea of her hosting her own daytime talk show. It was going to be different from anything on TV. It would be fun for celebrities to join. It would have the feel of a late night show while still being on daytime. And she made it clear that it wasn't going to be super hard hitting. It was going to be fun and playful and exciting. She would eventually sign a production deal with Telepictures, who is one of the key players in the daytime TV circuit. They're behind Ellen, Tyra, The People's Court, Judge Mathis, Jenny Jones, Queen Latifah, Caroline Rhea, et cetera, et cetera. And they were also behind Carney Wilson's show that Rosie's show would eventually replace. Telepictures founder Jim Paratora, by the way, would go on to create TMZ, which I found was fascinating. Rosie ended up negotiating an upfront salary of $1 million and larger ownership stake in her show, which meant big bucks when they would go into syndication, basically going for an Oprah deal, as she had stated in interviews. In return, her contract stipulated that she would not trash talk like on Jerry Springer and would keep a certain demeanor going. Rosie insisted on hiring Daniel Kellison as her show's first executive producer. He will be the first of four during the show's tenure who she had met while he was a producer on Late Night with David Letterman, which was Letterman's predecessor to him hosting The Late Show. Before Rosie gets the green light and production begins, Rosie is very open about her sexuality behind the scenes. She told the telepictures execs that she was gay before they signed her. And it's crazy to remember that she wasn't out for the first few decades of her career. She actually doesn't come out until March 2002, just a few months before her show's final episode would air. And it's really to protest a law in Florida that was banning adoptions by gay couples. She'll do that in a uh, Diane Sawyer interview. And it's also interesting to point out that Throughout Rosie's career in the 90s, you know, it's like people know behind the scenes that she's gay. And there are times where she will like very subtly allude to it. But ultimately, it gets censored because of her publicists and various other people who don't want her to lose her career. So one example is in the original scripts of Now and Then, they were going to portray adult Roberta as a lesbian, but they decided Hmm. to walk back on it. And I remember hearing about this, I think, in like her A&E biography or something like that. I always thought that was interesting. She also alluded to being gay in several interviews she did for magazines, but her publicist would work to ensure that those quotes wouldn't get published and also recommended that she wouldn't walk down a red carpet with her girlfriend at the time, just kind of kept that under wraps. Um, And also, you know, this will come up in your segment about interviews, but she talks about the crush that she has on Tom Cruise. But the extent of that on her show is that she just, you know, talks about fantasizing with about him being shirtless with a lawnmower in her yard, but like 
won't allude to him, you know, actually marrying or having any sort of relationship with him. But ultimately, behind the scenes, a lot of the people who were big players were actually gay. So her band leader uh, was gay, John McDaniel, and then comedian Judy Gold, who Judy Gold's amazing, but she worked actually as one of the segment producers behind the scenes. Um, and gay culture was always a big part of. Rosie's show. So she interviewed Liza Minnelli and Richard Simmons. She brought on Broadway shows. And Judy Gold says this in one interview that it was, quote, the gayest show ever, <laughs> which I thought was kind of funny. But behind the scenes, Rosie knew what she wanted. And she was often at odds with some of the producers and directors. So she went through four directors in the first seven months on air. And she was so popular that she had a lot of trouble keeping her personal life out of the papers. Once after a vacation, her producer at the time, Kellison, had pulled out a tabloid that ran photographs of her vacationing with her friends who were lesbians. He asked what they were going to do, and she ended up actually firing him at that point and replacing him with Hillary S.D. McLaughlin, who was the president of Telepictures at the time. She would last a year before going back to work for the company, and then it was Ronnie Selig, who was a former View producer, who also didn't work out. And ultimately, the show's final longtime producer would be Bernie Young, a former police detective who was actually Rosie's longtime manager. And ultimately, with Rosie, though, if she if you were on her side, she kept you close. So she was a really supportive employer. She had a mostly female staff. She had a full daycare center in the corner of her studio so parents could bring their kids who worked on set. Um, and the daycare costs were free for everyone who worked for her. So she's ultimately... I really love Rosie. You know, there's a lot of conflicting stuff, but ultimately she really looked out for her people if they were loyal to her. The show would premiere on June 10th, 1996 as a replacement for the Carney Wilson show that I mentioned earlier. The show was taped at Studio 8G at NBC's Rockefeller Center Studios in New York City, the same studio where Phil Donahue filmed his show Donahue. And it ultimately aired at the beginning of the summer so as to not face a lot of competition that you would face when a show debuts in the fall. Um, in terms of format, as I mentioned earlier, it was a lot of like late night talk shows. So that it would each episode would begin with an introduction from an audience member like, Hi, I'm Emily Bejin from San Francisco, California, and this is the Rosie O'Donnell Show today. Uh, today's guests are X, Y, and Z. Hit it, John. And that was the cue for the band leader. Um, and then it would lead into the animated theme and then back to the audience member saying, and now here's Rosie. So Rosie's format, very similar to Late Night. She would improvise with the audience. She did a little stand-up at times. Um, she would talk about, you know, what would, she had done the previous night. She would share stories around her kids. She was very personable. And she actually based this on something that she called Chuffa, I believe is how it's pronounced, or maybe it's Huffa. I'm not sure. It's a term she borrowed from Gary Marshall that refers to actors filling in their dialogue on the day of a scene. She was very improvisational, but it always worked really well. And then she would go into the interview segment, which was usually three to four guests. Some were, you know, promoting a movie or promoting a TV show or their music. There were some live performances, like you mentioned earlier, you know, before some big people before they got super famous. And then uh, she would also bring in, you know, some nostalgic favorites of hers from the past. And then she would also bring in full-on Broadway cast to do numbers, which was, at the time, not done by anyone else. Ultimately, behind the scenes, the producers had kind of a setup for her desk. Um, she had a bunch of props, like her koosh balls that she would throw out, which was... I hadn't thought of a koosh ball <laughs> in I don't know how many years until doing this research, but that was a lot of fun to think about. 
Um, Same. Even just seeing yes. her like throw yes. her around in clips, I'm like, this is so weird to look at. Totally. Absolutely. She also had her own music player. Then this is like pre-iPod days that she could just start playing when she wanted. So it would play like a Barbra Streisand song or like Live in La Vida Loca. And she would just mouth along the words. She was very much just like, uh, you know, the case of like stars. They're just like us before that was a thing. But that's really kind of the overall, you know, thing around her format. You, I know, have a lot about her interview guests uh, that I think offered a lot of interesting personality to the the show um, that she had helped create. Yeah, I. so you can kind of really take your pick sh- because she was so personable and easygoing and was the quote unquote queen of nice on her TV show. There was no shortage of guests that she could have her pick from. So typically she would have three to four guests and they would be from across the entertainment industry spectrum. To give you a small idea of what that means, her first episode guests, which were mostly set up by WB, were George Clooney, who was on ER and about to be in Batman and Robin, Susan Lucci, and Tony Braxton. In her first week, she had Penny Marshall, Fran Drescher, and Fran Drescher's parents giving New York restaurant reviews, Dennis Franz, Gloria Stefan, and Nathan Lane. Sadly, her... One size fits all seemed like a good idea for clothes. Nice dress. Uh, it's a it's a t-shirt. Until you tried it on. Same goes for your healthcare. That's why United Healthcare offers a variety of flexible, budget-friendly coverage for medical, vision, dental, and more. So whether you're between jobs, coming off a parent's plan, or even missed open enrollment, you can find the plan that fits you best. Find out more about United Healthcare coverage at uh1.com. That's uh1.com. Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here, and it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt-free. Hello Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan-crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at hellofresh.com. Last episode in her debut week was Donny Osmond, who made a joke about how his helicopter couldn't handle Rosie's weight, humiliating her on live daytime TV. He'll come back a few years later to atone for his sins by serenading Rosie with the song Puppy Love while dressed in a Party City dog outfit. Rosie also was, yeah, Rosie was also the first stop for a lot of up and coming celebs of the late to mid 90s. J.K. Rowling gave her first U.S. interview on the show and Rosie gave her a Mac uh, desktop because she wanted her to stop writing longhand on the back of napkins. Rosie also got in early on the careers of Britney Spears, Jessica Simpson, Ricky Martin, and Justin Timberlake. In 96, just before Ellen came out, she had Ellen on and she joked to Rosie about how she was going to be coming out as Lebanese. And Rosie responded with, maybe I'm Lebanese. And then later on, she would come out in 2002. She had Hillary Rodham Clinton on in her first non-formal first lady interview they played mary tyler moore trivia oh saying telephone hour from bye bye birdie i and didn't watch kissed, that clip <laughs> right and she kisses oscar the grouch you're like this yeah. is wild but it was to humanize her and i it was a big deal that she was on in 97 madonna rosie's league of their own co-star taught her how to do yoga while rosie cursed the whole time but rosie's biggest get at least to her was obviously barbara streisand 
On November 21st, 1997, Barbara Streisand received a whole hour on the Rosie O'Donnell show, more time than Hillary Clinton. Rosie wanted to air the interview without any commercials, but telepictures wouldn't allow it. They needed to pay the bills. Rosie burst into tears the second that Streisand walked out on stage, and she said, Rosie said that she felt like her mother had come back to life because Rosie's mother was a huge Barbara fan and then passed down her love of Babs to her daughter. Streisand, who likes to be shot from the left side of her face, didn't ask for this, but Rosie flipped her entire set so that Barbara would only be seen from her best angle. Rosie even denied it up until the very end. And finally, (laughs) Streisand admitted years later, yes, she changed it. She changed the chair to give me my good side. (laughs) A woman of the people, like truly. I know. She's like, you know what? I got to respect this legend's uh, request. I I think she like gave a quote to Ramin Satuta that's something along the lines of like, okay, yeah, whatever. We'll flip the set. What else do you want? (laughs) Like she was ready to do whatever. And by all accounts of former guests from the Rosie show said that she was incredibly generous. She always, she would have, you know, ding dongs and chocolate milk and all sorts of prizes always waiting for her audience members. She would always treat her guests very, very well, gave them whatever they wanted, would always bend over backwards. They always had nothing but a kind word to say to her, but which was very ironic considering that like people who worked for Rosie were like she was a little bit of an emotional terrorist. But in May of 1999, we got the first glimpse of Rosie's future as a view panelist when Tom Selleck came on to promote his rom-com, The Love Letter. Only weeks after the Columbine shooting, they got into a heated seven-minute debate Watch this clip. It is so fucking uncomfortable. And it is, uh, you know, rhetoric hasn't changed in that long. So that's what's incredible about it. It's so deeply disappointing to hear it. But, you know, honestly, make no mistake, Tom Selleck is a fucking asshole. He slapped a reporter in the face before. And, you know, praise fucking jaw that the NRA is practically defunded. So bye, you dusty ass bitch. (laughs) To watch him, like, maneuver and sidestep and be like, oh, you're questioning my humanity. It's like, and he's, he does like the toxic or the classic toxic thing of being like, well, if you just let me speak, and I just have to one thing to say, and they say that like 78 times, Mm -hmm, but you have spoken, mm -hmm. and you've said more than just one fucking thing. It was was hard to watch. You're just like, I'm getting upset and annoyed. But that didn't derail the Rosie all-star guest train, though. Actually, she got her other dream guest wish in her final episode in 2002, Tom Cruise. There was even a cardboard cutout of him with a countdown as well. And not only that, he mowed her lawn, not a euphemism, and gave Rosie a lemonade, the fantasy that Rosie described to Diane Sawyer in an interview. Also, in her final live episode, Rosie opened with a Broadway musical number starring Vanessa Williams and John Lithgow, and the guests that day were Nathan Lane and Christine Ebersole. The show's final segment featured a retrospective video made by Rosie that blended scenes from her personal life and her talk show, accompanied by the Joni Mitchell song, Both Sides Now. And those are all the notable guests I have. Again, you could go to her list of guests and truly just close your eyes and throw a dart. And I'm sure there's a wild, weird clip like totally. uh, you, can, you can have um, Gene Simmons coming through the little train station that was like set up around her desk or whatever. Like it, like you said, the show was very gay, even yes. though, you know, nobody was saying the quiet part out loud. Yeah. So I, she had a lot of notable guests. I mean, she had a lot of choirs on singing beautiful songs. And like you said, all of the Broadway musicals and really kind of tapped into like the camp of it yes. all. 
Did you say before you said Gene Simmons? Did you mean Richard Simmons? Just to confirm, that is what I meant. Okay, okay. Oh, I was like, the the conflate. <laughs> no, I also think I was like conflating the birdcage, the birdcages. Gene Hackman. Oh yes, with yes, Richard yes, yes. Simmons. In my mind, they fused. But you know, in in the words of Z Way. Danny Pellegrino would be an iconic guest to have right now because he's a huge Rosie O'Donnell show fan. He's got like a bunch of Rosie O'Donnell, like they made toys of her, like yeah. the doll, like a Barbie doll and like a plush doll and like a bunch of other shit, like ornaments and stuff like that. I mean, the show is a phenomenon, but he knows it- a lot about the Rosie O'Donnell show and The View because he's a huge fan. So he would have been an iconic guest, but we don't have that kind of pull. <laughs> Yeah, I mean, you bring up a great point, though. This was a ratings juggernaut. It inspired Mm -hmm. so many things that Rosie did on the side because of it. She had a cruise line. She had a thing called Chub Club, which is kind of offensive, but ultimately was a weight loss program and various other things. It was the highest debuting talk show in 10 years when it debuted. The premiere of the show delivered a 4.4 rating, which at the time was the equivalent of 4.2 million households. It would go on to win five Daytime Emmy Awards for Outstanding Talk Show from 1998 to 2002, breaking Oprah's streak, which, by the way, prior to that, Oprah had won nine out of the 11 previous Daytime Emmys for Best Daytime Talk Show. Like you said earlier, it did take a turn in 99 uh, when Tom Selleck came on the show. And uh, Rosie also attributes this to having a mental breakdown around the Columbine Massacre. Um, mm-hmm. Where she started, you know, showing a bit more of who she really was um, outside of this very bubbly personality. She would a year later proudly endorse Al Gore on her show, despite uh, telling telepictures that she would not bring up politics on her show. And ultimately, she decides to end the show in 2002 because she was burnt out, which makes sense. It is she had a great running show, but it is very hard to be the queen of nice for too long when you are, in fact, having to, you know, keep a part of your life outside of the, the you know, show that you're running, that you're running every single day. She had tried uh, to talk to Oprah about merging their talk shows so they could each take half a year off. It never really worked out because Harpo is its own production company from Telepictures, obviously. But ultimately, it would end in 2002, much like you said, with uh, final guest stars of Christine Ebersole and Nathan Lane and John Lithgow and Vanessa Williams being a part of an opening Broadway uh, segment. But she will ultimately leave to spend more time with her children, despite being offered a ton of money by telepictures to continue. And then that would lead into the final season where she had Caroline Rhea hosting every Friday who at the time she was hoping that Rhea's growing popularity would give Rhea the green light to host her own date time talk show. When Rhea did that after Rosie's show ended, she only lasted a season. And that is pretty much it uh, for Rosie. She would ultimately go on to uh, The View, which we will get into right now. Oh, yes. The View. It debuted on ABC as part of its daytime programming block on August 11th, 1997, which is another thing that it has in common with the Rosie O'Donnell show, debuts in the summer when it doesn't have a ton of competition. It was created by Barbara Walters, and she retired from the show in 2014. With Bill Getty and Barbara's longtime producing partner, Mark Gentile, they casted a multi-generational panel of women who would discuss the day's hot topics, ranging from sociopolitical to entertainment news. This being a Barbara Walters joint, though, there was also an interview segment. 
The original set for the first four seasons was actually a leftover set from a canceled soap opera called The City. The panelists would, yep, the panelists would sit around the table in armchairs and wear earpieces through which producer Bill Getty and Mark Gentile, who was serving as the showrunner and director for 17 years, would communicate with them. The original opening credits for The View featured a voiceover from Barbara explaining how the show's premise as well as the show's co-host's credentials. Quote, I've always wanted to do a show with women of different generations, backgrounds, and views. A working mother, that was supposed to be broadcast journalist Meredith Vieira, a professional in her 30s, lawyer Star Jones, a young woman just starting out, television host Debbie Metinopoulos, and then somebody who's done almost everything and will say almost anything, comedian Joy Behar, who was also considered to replace Rosie yes. when she decided to leave the Rosie O'Donnell show. but ultimately turned it down because she was on The View and she goes on to talk about it in Ladies Who Punch about how it's her one career regret because she feels like she could have really done something with it but was already pretty settled into The View. Anyway, uh, back to our intro. And in a perfect world, I get to join the group whenever I wanted. Conversely, every sign-off would go like this. Have a great day, everyone, and take a little time to enjoy The View, which is very like Barbara Walters has been doing this shit since the 50s. Like, yes. Yes, of course. Her, her first gig was uh, on CBS Morning News. <clears throat> Barbara didn't want to be too tied down. So she passed off moderator duties, moderator duties to Meredith. And then when Walters was unavailable because she was doing an evening news interview special, they would have Joy Behar as their lovely fourth alternate. But she quickly became a permanent member. Debbie Metinopoulos was the first to get the boot in December of 98 when Page Six wrote about her taking her top off at Hogs and Heifers. She was replaced <laughs> by Lisa Lang in 99, but the young upstart seat would be the one to experience the most change throughout the years. Lisa would leave in 2002 to host a Nat Geo show, and then they brought in Survivor alum Elizabeth Hasselbeck, who would later go on to have that infamous argument with Rosie. They tested Elizabeth against real-world alum Rachel Campos Duffy and actress Erin Hershey Presley. Why does everyone need to have three names? But ultimately, we know who won out. (laughs) In 2006, Vieira announced that she was going to be leaving the show to become the co-anchor of the NBC show today. Her final episode would air on June 9th. That same month, Star Jones announced her departure on air, but stated that she would remain on the show through July. Despite this, Walters stated... The following day that actually Star would not be appearing anymore, publicly claiming that she felt betrayed by Star for unexpectedly making the announcement two days ahead of schedule, which is something they come back to a lot on Mm -hmm. Ladies Who Punch about not crossing Barbara. She has a very old school, you know, think of the show or think of the movie network like mentality like you do not... You announce things when she says you announce things. You give things time. You know, you dump things off on a Friday. She has her tricks and she has her reasonings. So she was already sort of at the end of her rope with Star between her hawking her wedding on on the on the view for I the longest was amount of time. Going to say she's the original influencer. I mean, she was the spawn con, the shelling of the various people who were giving free stuff to her wedding to Al Reynolds was amazing. Like when I went back and was reading this, I'm like, oh, we all say Paris Hilton was the original Instagram influencer. Like there's a bit of that, but Star Jones was the first doing like the real spawn con deal. Uh, yeah, she was the first to really ink a deal versus be like a real influencer. I think there is a difference. Like, I don't think that Star necessarily influenced the culture in a similar way as Paris Hilton, but I definitely think that Star started SpawnCon, you know, and 
unashamed spawn con right mm-hmm. other than like mm-hmm. her lying about her gastric sleeve which she would later admit like in a book or whatever she was always i mean she's a lawyer she's smart she's always holding out for the best deal and i think that that's ultimately what made Barbara really upset. She felt like her hawking her wares on The View cheapened the whole brand. And she was willing to live with that. But then when she jumped the shark on this announcement, she was like, bye. So in an interview with People, though, Starr claimed the decision to leave was not hers and that producers actually informed her that day that she would not have her contract renewed in April. Barbara later stated the ABC execs had actually decided not to renew her contract, not her, and actually through market research had found that Star's scores were not great. But during the 33rd Daytime Emmys, it was announced that Rosie would be joining the show for its 10th season and made her debut September 5th. Before Rosie and Hasselbeck's huge on-air argument about the Iraq War in 2007, they were actually pretty good friends. So much so that Joy Behar, according to the book, speculated that, quote, Rosie must have had a crush on Elizabeth. Later in Ladies Who Punch, Rosie actually admits to having a crush on Hasselbeck. But as we have talked about, about like her, you know, her harmless crush on Tom Cruise or her, her harmless crushes on people, full stop. She yeah. said, yes, I did have a crush on her, but it was not sexual at all. And again, look at her other quote unquote crushes from her Rosie O'Donnell show days. So it all tracks for me. But the confrontation in question, which Ramin Satuta calls Doomsday in Ladies Who Punch, began one one random day in 2007 when Joy passionately but harmlessly listed all of her grievances with President George W. Bush. After she was done chastising a GOP congressman for defending him during the Iraq War, Hasselbeck fired back, quote, they stick by him for not demanding a pullout date for our troops, which is essentially saying to our enemies, we don't have any team out there. That's when O'Donnell saw the whites of her eyes. You just said our enemies in Iraq, Rosie chimed in. Did did Iraq attack us? Hesselbeck quickly clarified what she meant, Al-Qaeda. But the damage was done. A tidal wave of emotion took over and both women made it very, very clear that they weren't going to agree or talk about politics anymore. Quote, let me tell you why I don't want to do it. Rosie said of the impending clash, because here's how it gets spun in the media. Rosie, big, fat, lesbian, loud Rosie attacks innocent, pure Christian Elizabeth, and I'm not doing it. But she did. The back and forth came so fast and furious and more mean-spirited and personal than anybody could have imagined. The producers threw the woman into a split screen like a nighttime. Yep. Like a nighttime cable news show and chose not to cut to commercials. Joy and then guest host Sherry Shepard tried to chime in with jokes, but nothing landed. Quote, I don't understand how there can be such hurt feelings when all I did was say, look, why don't you tell everyone what you said? I did that as a friend, (laughs) which is what Elizabeth said secretly through her headset. That pushed Rosie O'Donnell over the edge. What you did was not defend me. I asked you if you believed what the Republican pundits were saying. You said nothing. That's cowardly. After the show, Rosie quit more than a month before her planned departure. On May 25th, ABC stated that O'Donnell had been let out of her contract three weeks before its expiration and that she'd been granting permission to depart immediately. On August 1st of 2007, Walters announced Whoopi would be replacing Rosie for season 11. Whoopi made her debut in the season 11 premiere with other new co-panelist Sherry Shepard. On March 7th, 2013, Joy announced that she was leaving the series at the end of season 16, but we all know that she came back eventually. But 
That's interesting because the next day, though, Elizabeth was reported that she was supposed to leave alongside Joy because market research found both of their views too polarizing, which Barbara has denied. The next to announce who was leaving was Barbara herself. She was going to be leaving The View May 13th, 2014, and shortly thereafter, despite her denial, Elizabeth Hasselbeck left The View for Fox and Friends. Duh. After Joy left in August, though, she was replaced by Jenny McCarthy for Oof. some fucking reason. Oof. And Walters made her final appearance as co-host on May 16th, 2014. Shepard and McCarthy announced their departures in the following month and made their final appearances on August 1st. And that is the view up until Barbara Walters' retirement. She would come back every now and again as a guest host to fill in for somebody when they were gone, but that lasted only a year. And then she was officially some some people in the book say forced to retire, but I think it was just time. I mean, she was like she's in her, she must have been she's in, in her nineties, late seventies. Yeah, so yeah. then she must have been in her eighties then at that point. Yeah, I mean, she'd been on TV for a very long time. Like when I did mm-hmm. kind of the background to look up just like the original cast and what their you know experience had been up until that point. Like, I mean, of course, I know who Barbara Walters is, and I knew way before The View. But, you know, realizing she had basically been on major network television since 1962. Um, She was on the Today Show. Then she went to ABC where she was the co-anchor for the Evening News and then went to 2020 where she was from 1979 to 2004. You know, she had been around for a very, very, very long, long time. And I think that's what's interesting to me about The View is that it starts out with three very fairly experienced people from a host perspective. And then Debbie Matinopoulos was brought in, which was very interesting. Like reading into like what her backstory was, ultimately, Mm -hmm. she was someone that Barbara Walters just really liked. So at the time, Debbie Matinopoulos was working on uh, MTV as a production assistant. And because she made a connection with Barbara Walters, she was invited to audition and got the final spot at the table at age 22. And she ended up being the first departure and and the first like a very dramatic one at the same time. And part of that is, you know, when the ratings come up and the, oh, people don't like you, it's very quickly you get the boot at the view. That was very interesting to me. So seeing that like Debbie Matinopoulos, you know, on top of what you said, which was that she was found, you know, topless photos of her at uh, Hogs and Heifers. On top of that, according to Walters and other people, she wasn't testing well with any audience because older people thought she was fun, but just very ditzy and uninformed. And then younger people felt like this was uh, ABC's way to pander to younger viewers without giving them someone more like Lisa Ling, who was also in her 20s, but ultimately had a very seasoned background in journalism before coming to The View. And so it was really interesting to me to just kind of read on how, you know, some of these departures happened and some of the decisions around casting, especially like once Debbie Matinopoulos leaves and then Lisa Ling leaves in 2002, the younger person seat takes this conservative turn. Prior to mm-hmm. that, like Matinopoulos was kind of a fun MTV background. And then Lisa Ling had been doing journalism since her time at like Channel One News. I don't know if you ever watched Channel One News in high school, but it was like a it was like a TV sh- like news show for teenagers that they sometimes showed in high schools. Like I think we watched it a few times at my high school, but Lisa Ling had gotten her start there. And um, and then going into that kind of 
twist into having a conservative host. It's been interesting to see, you know, who they've chosen over the years. There's Elizabeth Hasselbeck, who, you know, very much got into an argument with Rosie O'Donnell on the show, later would also get into an argument around um, the morning after pill with Joey Behar. Um, and then later, you know, having people like who we mentioned earlier, Megan McCain, um, they've gone They've skewed over time to people who I think are more conservative. Like Hasselbeck was pretty conservative, but I think over time they've gone to someone like Meghan McCain, who, you know, tended to be more moderate, but has definitely skewed more conservative over the years um, and have not gone with people who I thought they would go with. So um, Ana Navarro for a while I has been a guest host. I don't think she's ever been a permanent host on The View, but she to me makes a lot more sense as like a conservative commentator you'd want on the show because she's more conservative, but at the same time provides a more interesting point of view, in my opinion. Um, but it is like, ultimately, I don't know just how relevant this show is nowadays. Like I, I catch a clip here and there on Twitter when people are mad because, you know, uh, Megan Miss Kane has said something dumb on the air and Whoopi has rightly corrected her. <laughs> But really, I don't know just how relevant those are the only sh- clips that yeah, are out there, right? Completely. Like that's all you get. Yes, absolutely. And that to me is very interesting because ten years ago it was a very different show. I mean, I think the topics they discussed at the time were a lot more groundbreaking. Now I think there are just enough shows on TV that have kind of broken this mold um, that offer more diverse perspectives that the show just feels, you know, kind of dated in my opinion. Yeah, I I think that unfortunately it it is starting to feel a little bit like don't want to say it's run its course, but it's also had like the same panelists for a really long mm-hmm. time. It's had a lot of the same sameness, which I think contributes to it feeling a little bit dated, right? Like how long and also there's like Nobody really kind of makes good on their promise to leave, right? Like Whoopi has threatened to leave multiple times. She's still there. Joy has left and then come back. I don't know. I guess it, it part of you wants to ask, like, what purpose does this serve now? Especially when it has a bunch of other, you know, spinoffs like The Talk and The, the Real. Real. Yeah. I've always sort of wondered who watches these every single day. So maybe if it just wasn't on four days a week and was maybe reduced to like, you know, maybe a twice weekly show instead, maybe it wouldn't feel like that. But I don't know. I it's it, It'll be interesting to see what happens to The View in the next couple of years. I, yeah, I, I just don't see it lasting much longer. I at this point that and it's like subsequent spinoffs, like the other shows, you know, like the talk had Sharon Osbourne, who, as we know, is super problematic in many ways. It's just gotten to the point where I think these these styles of of shows are just so it requires a certain level of, of finesse. But I feel like that's the case in all of daytime right now. I think there's a big question mark as to what formats work like let's be honest like ellen's going off air or, or has already i don't remember if it's if it's already off air but a lot of the kind of daytime style words that for years were associated with kindness and fun and keeping it light like the behind the scenes you know behind the curtain the curtains dropped and we've seen what's gone on behind the scenes or the formats have become tired over time because they kept being recycled and never you know there's no iter- reiteration on it so yeah, I just don't know. I, it's not just for this show or this style of show, but I think any daytime show for that matter at this point. 
It'll be interesting to see what the landscape looks like, because what else is it going to be replaced by, you know? I don't know. (laughs) Well, that's all we really have for today. But before we end things, do you have any final parting thoughts, Margo? Reinvent daytime TV. I mean, (laughs) you know what? I got to say, I do like, well, I like the Kelly Oki part of the Kelly Clarkson show. Yeah. But I don't know. We, I think also between her and Drew Barrymore, we'll see how they do as well. And I think those outcomes will sort of end up deciding what kind of daytime TV we get. Because also with soap operas, not doing what they used to do. I think it's time that we start rethinking daytime programming and maybe starting to treat it a little bit more like prestige TV as well. Yeah, I know. I agree. I think you you have said it rightfully. Um, I I think that that is very much the case. I also think that, you know, as we're rethinking this, I do think that there will be some some shakeups in late night. I think this is Conan O'Brien's last week doing his show. Um, mm-hmm. I'm pretty sure like tomorrow or or Thursday night will be his last episode. Um, I'll be interested to see if there are other big changes that take place on that side of the day. Uh, do you have anything to say? <laughs> no, I'm done. I'm okay, done cool. sharing thoughts. Yeah. Wonderful. <laughs> Well, thanks again for listening to our podcast. If you like what you've heard, you can check out our other episodes on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, Audible Podcasts, and really wherever you like to listen to your podcasts. The best way to stay up to date on our latest episodes is to subscribe to our podcast uh, wherever you like to listen. And while you're hitting that subscribe button, think about leaving us a rating and a review. Additionally, you can find us on social media. We are on Instagram and at Facebook at The Old Millennials Pod. Individually, you can find us on Twitter. I'm at Emily A. Beijing. And I'm at Margs, she wrote. And until next time, we say bye-bye. Bye. Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here. And it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt free. Hello, Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello, Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com.